You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the second and final part of the Season 7 special. Last week in Part 1 I covered the background, early life and professional career of British serial killer Dr Harold Shipman. If you haven't already, please give that episode a listen first as it provides vital background information regarding our villain. I'm telling this second part of the story in a way that assumes you've checked out Part 1. Here's how I'm going to do it with the second part. It will be longer than the first part based on my final word count, so bear with me on this episode. We know from part one that Harold Shipman is thought to have murdered between 218 and 250 of his patients whilst working as a GP in several hospitals, including his own practice. Having said that, most of the victims came to lie after his murder trial. Therefore, the most logical way for me to complete the story of Harold Shipman is to go through each of the 15 murders he was found guilty of in court. I appreciate there are going to be hundreds of victims and their families not being acknowledged during this episode. No offence is intended, I simply don't have the time and resources to go through each case in a single podcast episode. The Shipman Inquiry spent five years looking into it, and if you want to read these six published reports, I've linked an archived Shipman Inquiry website in this episode's show notes. I'm skipping the icebreakers this week as we did them in part one. The same applies for my five random facts about the location of this episode, which as you'll remember is Hyde in Greater Manchester. There is a lot to cover this week, so let's dive right in. In August 1992, Harold Shipman moved his practice to 21 Market Street in Hyde and named it The Surgery. The first of the 15 murder victims Harold was charged with killing in court was 81-year-old Marie West, a clothes shop owner that lived in the Gee Cross district of Hyde. Marie joined The Surgery around October 1993 after deciding to leave her previous GP. As was common in Hyde at the time, Dr. Harold Shipman's practice came highly recommended due to his delightful bedside manner and personal approach to his patients. Marie had a son named Christopher who regularly took her out shopping. As with most of Harold's victims, Marie was as fit as a fiddle for her age and in great shape. She kept herself active and had a busy social life with a local pensioners club. Her role with the club was to arrange and book getaways for the members, including herself. On the morning of March 6, 1995, Marie had booked another holiday with one of her many friends and was thoroughly looking forward to it. Marie called Harold at the surgery and explained to him that she was struggling with her hip and was hoping to be referred to the hospital by him. A house call was arranged for later that day. Unbeknownst to Harold, Marie's friend Marion Hadfield had popped over prior to his arrival but was aware of the impending house call. As Harold arrived at the house on Knotfold, Marion had left the room briefly and was about to walk in on Harold conducting his assessment on Marie. Not wanting to interrupt, Marion made herself scarce and disappeared into the kitchen whilst the appointment was carried out. Marion had no idea that at that moment, Harold Shipman was injecting her friend Marie with a lethal dose of diamorphine. A week prior, Harold had prescribed one of his patients a thousand milligrams of diamorphine, but as he had decades earlier with pethidine, he kept the supplies for himself. 
It wasn't a drug addiction he wanted it for this time, though. It was to carry out cold-blooded murder. With Marie now dying in the other room, Marion was greeted by a taken-aback Harold Shipman, who'd made his way into the kitchen. No doubt shitting himself, as he had no idea Marion was in the house, Harold explained, quick as a flash, that Marie had collapsed during his examination. Rushing in to check on her friend, Marion found Marie slumped in a chair, motionless. Harold then told Marion he was looking for a phone to contact Marie's son to let him know his mum had died. Marion asked if anything could be done to save Marie, to which Harold simply replied, No, she's gone. Christopher then received a call from his mother's landline and was shocked when a man began to speak. In a blunt and monotone voice, Harold said, Dr. Shipman here. I'm phoning to tell you your mother's died. Harold then left the house whilst Christopher rushed home, but the GP returned later that day, presumably to confirm that Marie had died. He informed Christopher that her quality of life would have been minimal had she survived, so it was perhaps a blessing that she'd passed away. Harold said that Marie had died of a massive stroke, but later changed his story. A heart attack was then said to have been the cause of death. Medical records later found at Harold's home confirmed he put Marie West's cause of death as a stroke. Now, I'm not comfortable giving these 15 women whose tragic stories I'm telling in this episode numbers. I don't want to say victim number two was so-and-so, victim number seven was such-and-such, etc. These women had families, friends, hobbies and interests, stories to tell. They are far more than statistics. I trust that you'll be able to follow the story without me resorting to a numbering system to let you know where I'm at. With that in mind, our story continues on July 11th, 1996, 16 months after the murder of Marie West. Let me introduce Irene Turner, a 67-year-old mother of two in breast cancer remission who regularly took tablets to help manage her diabetes. Irene moved to Hyde in the mid-70s and remained one of Harold Shipman's patients until her death. You'll recall that Harold first joined the Donnybrook Medical Centre in the town in October 1977. It must have been around that time that she first met Harold. Despite her previous battle with cancer and her diabetes, Irene was considered healthy. As many of his patients did, Irene idolised her GP and thought the world of him. When she got home from a trip down south to Torquay with her friends, Irene fell unusually under the weather and believed herself to have caught a cold. A call to the surgery led to Harold organising a house call at Irene's St Paul's Hill Road home later that day. Within a few minutes of his arrival, Harold had injected Irene with a fatal dose of morphine and left her to die on her bed. He made his way outside and caught the eye of Irene's neighbour, Sheila Ward. He asked Sheila to pack some clothes in a bag for Irene because she needed to be taken to the hospital and may have to stay there for a few days. Sheila also recalled an even more bizarre request from Harold. He asked her to wait five minutes before entering the house. Realistically, this was likely to buy him some time and ensure that Irene was dead when Sheila made her way over. By the time Sheila arrived, Harold had disappeared and Irene had passed away. The first person Sheila informed was Michael Woodruff, the husband of Carol Woodruff, one of Irene's daughters. Rushing to his mother-in-law's house, Michael was greeted by Harold Shipman, who had returned to the crime scene. Explaining to Michael that she had likely died as a result of complications from her diabetes, Harold said a post-mortem would not be necessary due to the volume of tablets Irene took daily. Convincing his victims next of kin that a post-mortem was not required is one of many common themes throughout this episode. 
Irene's official cause of death, as stated by Harold, was due to circulatory failure, ischemic heart disease and diabetes. Her death certificate was collected in the days after her death by Alfred Isherwood, the husband of Irene's other daughter, Lynn Isherwood. The interaction between Harold and Alfred that day was unusual. Alfred said of the encounter, Shipman said that Irene didn't stick to her diet as rigidly as she ought to have done being a diabetic. I couldn't believe what Shipman was saying, as Irene's diabetes was well under control. He was very offhand and matter-of-fact about the death. At the time, I just thought he was hardened to death because of his job. Exhumation is another common theme in this episode. Irene's body was later exhumed after Harold was arrested and found to contain lethal amounts of morphine. February 28th, 1997 is the next key date in our timeline. That was the day the ever-popular 77-year-old Lizzie Adams received a house call from her GP that would lead to her unexpected death. Lizzie was a keen world traveller and a much-loved dance teacher in Hyde that everybody knew. The Caribbean, China, America, Australia and Canada are but a few places Lizzie visited during her golden years. In a past life, she had been a sewing machinist, but her real passion came from dancing and teaching others to dance, a profession she did for 16 years with her close friend and ballroom dance partner, Bill Catlow. Bill had known Lizzie for decades since the pair were teenagers. Their respective husband and wife completed the friendly foursome until they sadly passed away. Bill and Lizzie retired from teaching dance classes in April 1995, much to the heartbreak of the local community, but vowed to carry on dancing for fun at weekends. The dance partners were featured in a Thameside advertiser article after they hung up their dancing shoes. Hyde had an over-50s club at the time that was rather popular, and they'd organised a holiday to the Republic of Malta, an island country in the Mediterranean Sea. The club may still be prevalent to this day. The Malta trip was a chance for the club to get away from England and have a week or so full of carefree dancing in the sunshine. Bill accompanied Lizzie on the trip along with many others. After arriving back in the UK, Bill saw Lizzie on February 27, 1997, with the pair planning to go dancing the following afternoon. As promised, Bill made his way to Lizzie's house on Coronation Avenue the next day and was shocked to find her front door unlocked. Before calling out for his friend, Bill saw Harold Shipman in the front room looking at Lizzie's Royal Dalton figures in a cabinet case. When he realised Bill was there, Harold explained that Lizzie had gone, by which he meant she had died. Bill rushed into the next room and frantically attempted to find a pulse and was beyond relieved when he found one. Saying as much to Harold, Bill was shot down almost instantly. After pretending to call an ambulance, Harold informed Bill that he had likely felt his own pulse. At no point did Harold examine Lizzie before declaring her officially dead. He then pretended to cancel the ambulance he'd just called, but phone records would later reveal he had made no phone calls from Lizzie's house that day. Pretend phone calls are yet another common theme of this episode. Doreen Thorley, one of Lizzie's daughters who lived around the corner from her mum, recalls the following. Shipman said she didn't need a post-mortem because he was there. He said I was to get in touch with the funeral directors. Lizzie's cause of death was said to be pneumonia and she would go on to be cremated. The truth was that she had been injected with a lethal dose of diamorphine by Harold Shipman. Jean Lilly was a 58-year-old retired cotton warper that lived in a house on Jackson Street with her lorry driver husband, Albert. She was the only woman out of the 15 Harold was convicted of killing that was married. 
The married couple had two children, Odetta and Wayne, and each of the four family members held their community GP in the highest regard. On the morning of April 25th, 1997, at around 5am, Albert left home and made his way to work. Later that morning, Harold Shipman made a house call and was left alone with Jean for just short of an hour. She had phoned the surgery due to suffering from the effects of a cold. Before his arrival, Jean's friend and neighbour Elizabeth Hunter had popped over for a catch-up, but made her way back home shortly before the GP got there. Jean was in fine form as usual that morning, according to Elizabeth. The two women had discussed their weekend plans, with Jean explaining that she and Albert were going to go shopping for some clothes for their future grandchild. Odetta was pregnant and expecting a daughter. Believing it to be a simple house call, Elizabeth grew concerned when the appointment seemed to last an eternity. Harold emerged from Jean's home 50 minutes after entering, and almost immediately after he left, Elizabeth made her way over to check on her friend. Jean was motionless on her bed without a pulse, which prompted Elizabeth to phone an ambulance. There was nothing the emergency services could do for Jean when they arrived. They informed Elizabeth that she had been dead for a good while. Shipman returned to the scene as he always did and didn't do much in the way of consoling Elizabeth. He said, there's no point in crying because she's already gone. She's gone. Harold then phoned Albert, but rather than telling him directly what had happened, he opted to give him a few riddles instead. Harold said, I've been with your wife quite a while trying to persuade her to go to hospital, but she won't go. I was going to wait until you came home and come back and have a chat with you, but it was too late. When asked by Albert what the GP meant, Harold replied, You're not listening to me carefully. You don't understand. The penny finally dropped that Albert's wife had passed away. Harold must have got sick pleasure out of making the bereaved family members of his victims have to work out for themselves that they had died. Jean's cause of death was put down to severe heart problems. In a sickening twist, Jean's funeral raised over £300 in donation, which a family insisted were to be passed on to Harold's Patients Fund. Later examination of Jean's body by a pathologist confirmed a lethal dose of morphine to have been the correct cause of death. No heart problems were found. A month after Jean Lilly's murder came the murder of 63-year-old Ivy Lomas, who was a regular attendee at the surgery in Hyde. On May 29, 1997, Ivy had an appointment at 4pm and arrived early as she always did. Carol Chapman, the receptionist on duty at the time, recalled Ivy being seen at 3.55pm when she was shown into the surgery's treatment room. 20 minutes later, at 4.15pm, Harold exited the treatment room alone and appeared flushed in the face. He made an effort to apologise to his patients who were growing restless in the waiting room. He said, Folks, I'm sorry about that. I have had trouble with the ECG machine. Harold then resumed his GP duties and saw three more of his patients before confessing to Carol that he had attempted to resuscitate Ivy in the treatment room but had failed, hence his delay in returning. It wasn't clear to Carol why Ivy had been taken to the treatment room in the first place as there was nothing visibly concerning about her behaviour. Harold had injected Ivy with a lethal dose of morphine during that short period of time and she was dead before he left the treatment room. The police were then called and Harold was even seen poking fun at Ivy's frequent visits to the surgery. Police Sergeant Philip Reed was told by Harold that he'd considered mounting a plaque above one of the waiting room seats with the words, seat permanently reserved for Ivy Lomas etched on it. The man was laughing as his patient lay dead in the next room at his hands. 
At the time of Harold's trial, it was put on record that five of his patients had died at the surgery on 21 Market Street, but only Ivy Lomas's death was treated as being intentionally caused by Harold. She was, therefore, the only Harold Shipman victim to die in his surgery as opposed to in her own home. Two days after Ivy's death, Harold made some amendments to her medical records to make it look like she was sicker than she was. Her cause of death was said to be coronary thrombosis with ischemic heart disease. Morphine was later found in her system. Muriel Grimshaw was the next woman targeted by Harold Shipman. She was previously married to Albert Ashbrook with the pair running a glove factory in Hyde, but Muriel retired after Albert passed away. Muriel looked after her appearance and was well-liked in the community and was always friendly and courteous to those around her. On the morning of July 14, 1997, Muriel's daughter Anne Brown received a phone call from one of her mum's neighbours at Berkeley Crescent. She asked her to pop over and visit her mum immediately. Anne did so and was greeted with the traumatic sight of her mum lying motionless on her bed. Harold Shipman was the first person Anne called. The GP arrived at the house with someone Anne described as a female assistant, the identity of whom is not known. The nameless woman wore white overalls and shoes and was slightly built with dark hair. No introductions were made, so Anne just assumed she was a nurse at the surgery. He went to the foot of the bed and he just gave her a cursory glance. I expected him to touch her, but he didn't, Anne said of Harold's visit that morning. Harold estimated Muriel's time of death to have been 5.30pm the previous evening, but insisted the coroner did not need to be contacted. He said she had died from a stroke and hypertension. Therefore, no post-mortem was required either, according to Harold. As with so many of his victims, Muriel's medical records were retrospectively altered after she was murdered. Not much else is known about this murder other than Harold Shipman at some point, I assume the previous evening, administered a lethal dose of diamorphine to Muriel, killing her almost instantly. A later exhumation of her body confirmed that. Perhaps the neighbour saw Harold leave the house, or was worried about not seeing Muriel that morning. I can't say for sure, but something must have spooked them enough to call Anne and have her come over. One other tidbit of information that may be of interest is that Anne Brown's husband Raymond, who'd previously passed away from cancer, was prescribed copious amounts of diamorphine by Harold Shipman shortly before his death. Whether Harold was responsible for Raymond's death is not known, but he had once again stockpiled a large number of opioids to do with as he pleased. Four months passed before Harold killed again. Please note that he likely killed several others during this week's timeline, but remember I'm only focusing on the 15 women he was convicted of killing at his murder trial. Marie Quinn was a 67-year-old Catholic who had a good friendship with Father Donald Smith, a Catholic priest who lived on the other side of the world in Japan. Also living in Japan was Marie's son, John. In the early afternoon of November 24th, 1997, Marie made a phone call to Father Smith and the pair had a conversation that ended at around 2.30pm UK time. That will have been roughly 11.30pm in Japan. Throughout the call, Father Smith recalled Marie being in high spirits and there was no cause for concern regarding her health or behaviour. Ending the call so that he could get some sleep, Father Smith informed Marie that he would ring her back in a few hours. At 3.30am Japan Standard Time, 6.30pm a day earlier UK time, Father Smith received a phone call, but it wasn't from Marie. Instead, Ellen Hanrate had phoned Father Smith to inform him that their close friend Marie had unexpectedly passed away. 
the priest took on the responsibility of informing Marie's son, John, of his mother's sudden passing. Within a few hours of ending the call with Father Smith, Marie had received an unexpected visit at her Peel Street home from Harold Shipman, who then injected her with a lethal dose of diamorphine. Harold would later say that Marie had phoned the surgery and requested a home visit due to feeling unwell, but checks of Marie's phone records would show that no such call was made. Arriving back in the UK, John Quinn headed straight for the surgery to speak with Harold and ask him about what had happened to his mum. Harold said she had had a stroke at home and was already dead by the time he arrived. John had some reservations, but like so many others, he believed what Harold told him. Later, post-mortem examinations would reveal Marie's actual cause of death and also showed that she exhibited none of the health issues Harold claimed she had. Kathleen Wagstaff was one of two women murdered a day apart in December 1997. Born Laura Kathleen Wagstaff, Kathleen went by her middle name and, like so many of the women in this episode, was in great health for her age at the time of her death. 81-year-old Kathleen stayed active and walked wherever she could, including the two-mile round trip to the local shops. Her son, Peter, would visit his mum once or twice a week for lunch and they also spoke regularly on the phone. Kathleen's murder appears to have been a case of mistaken identity. Peter Wagstaff was married to Angela Wagstaff, whose mum was Anne Royal. It's believed that when Harold Shipman visited Kathleen's Rock Gardens home on December 9th, 1997 and injected her with a lethal dose of morphine, he'd intended to murder Anne rather than her. After killing Kathleen, Harold visited Angela at her work to inform her of her mother's death. Understandably distraught, Angela made her way to her mum's house as quickly as possible and was shocked to see her mum very much alive through the letterbox after knocking on the front door. A call to the surgery followed and it was then that Harold realised his mistake. He informed Angela that it was in fact her mother-in-law, Kathleen, that had died. Her cause of death was said to have been heart disease. The next day, Peter and Angela visited Harold at the surgery and had to sit there and listen to him explain to them all about heart disease and how it led to Kathleen's death. They had no idea she'd been murdered by the man in front of them. Later that day, December 10th, 1997, Harold turned his attention to 49-year-old divorcee Bianca Pomfret. Originally from Germany, Bianca married her ex-husband Adrian in 1976, having met six years earlier when he was in the German army. The marriage ended after two decades, by which point Bianca was living on her own on Fountain Street in Hyde. At the time of her death, things were thought to have been going well for outgoing Bianca, but the previous years had not been kind to her mentally. Around 1987, Bianca started seeing psychiatrist Dr. Alan Tate after feelings of depression started to become overwhelming. Bianca was referred to Dr. Tate by Harold Shipman. December was always a tough month for Bianca, something which Harold likely knew, and concerns were being raised in 1997 that she might be planning to harm herself. Bianca was admitted to a secure hospital in March 1996 and remained there until January 1997. Three months before she was killed, Bianca wrote her psychiatrist a letter in which she expressed a desire to kill herself. She said, Every morning in the past week I have felt I wanted to kill myself. The only thing stopping me is my dog. I just want to give up the struggle and die. I can't see any point in continuing with my life. On December 8th, 1997, two days before her death, Bianca was seen by Dr. Tate and said to have been distressed and agitated raising severe concerns over her mental health given the time of year. 
Bianca's son, William, has revealed that Bianca was once given a tour of the surgery by Harold during a time when she was considering writing her will and leaving her entire estate to the GP. Bianca changed her mind in the end. She was found dead in a chair at her house on December 10th, 1997 by William. Paramedics were called but made no attempt to resuscitate her as she was dead on arrival. Harold was summoned to the property and told William that her cause of death was coronary thrombosis and ischemic heart disease. She had called him complaining of chest pains two days before her death, according to Harold. In reality, it's likely that no such call was made by Bianca. Dr. Tate contacted Harold upon learning of Bianca's death as he feared she may have killed herself. Harold lied and explained that Bianca had been found with a faint pulse and that resuscitation had been attempted but failed. He then altered Bianca's medical records on his computer in the hope of covering his tracks. He had no idea he was only incriminating himself further. When Bianca's body was exhumed after Harold's arrest, it was found to contain excessive levels of morphine. There was no evidence of coronary thrombosis or ischemic heart disease. She was the youngest of the 15 victims whose cases were discussed at Harold's murder trial. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The first woman murdered in 1998 was 64-year-old Nora Nuttall, who visited the surgery on the morning of January 26th in the hope of acquiring some cough medicine. Describing her symptoms to Harold, Nora said she had some pains in her chest, to which the doctor replied by advising it would be best if she stayed indoors for a few days. Cough medicine was also prescribed. Living with Nora at her Barren Road home was her son Anthony. When Anthony arrived back home at around 2pm that day, he asked his mum how she got on at the doctor's. Nora showed her son the cough medicine, but was yet to open the bottle and have some. Anthony then disappeared to tend to some ponies in a nearby field, at which point Harold Shipman made an unexpected house call to see Nora. He hadn't made a house call to Nora for eight years, and within five minutes of this one, she was dead at the hands of her GP and his diamorphine-filled needle. It's unclear if Harold has impeccable timing or if he sat and waited for Anthony to leave. Either way, when Anthony returned home an hour after Harold had arrived, the GP rushed outside and explained that Nora was unwell. An ambulance had been called, Harold assured Anthony. When the two men went inside, Nora was quite clearly already dead. Harold then made another phone call to cancel the ambulance. Phone records later revealed neither of the two alleged calls were made. Nora's cause of death, so say Harold, was left ventricle heart failure. He also confirmed that no post-mortem would be required. Elizabeth Oldham, Nora's sister, was told by Harold that Nora had taken a turn for the worst after he popped over for a pre-arranged checkup. Pamela Hillier was a 68-year-old Christian who was a regular attendee at Mottram Parish Church. Still remaining as active as possible, Pamela walked her dog three times each day and was even in the process of redecorating her house when she met her untimely death at the hands of Harold Shipman. She lived alone at Staleybridge Road in the village of Mottram and had two adult children named Jacqueline and Keith. Her husband Cyril had passed away. In the days leading up to her death, Pamela injured her knee after a nasty fall, but luckily nothing was broken. After a few days of pain, Pamela reached out to Harold Shipman and organised a home visit for February 9th, 1998. Jacqueline popped round that morning before the appointment and recalled her mother being her usual self and in fine health, apart from her knee. 
The visit with Harold Shipman went ahead, but it wasn't until Jacqueline attempted to phone her mum at 4.30pm that afternoon that alarm bells started ringing. No answer was received, so Jacqueline resorted to phoning her mum's neighbours. They insisted she come over as soon as possible. Jacqueline arrived at Pamela's house a short while later and was greeted by the sight of paramedics tending to her mum, who was already dead by the time they arrived. Harold then showed up and informed everyone, simply by looking at Pamela, that she'd had a stroke. He said he could tell by the way she was lying. The only one lying was Harold Shipman. Jacqueline and Keith visited the surgery the next day and were confused by what the GP was telling them. In one breath, he said their mum had died of a stroke. He then said that Pamela had high blood pressure, but not high enough to cause a stroke. To say they were confused would be an understatement. The siblings insisted that a post-mortem needed to be undertaken due to the confusion, but Harold insisted it wasn't necessary. He knew the cause of death, and the one to blame was Pamela for her self-inflicted poor health caused by her lifestyle. It was all nonsense intended to make the siblings believe their mum's death was her own fault. After injecting Pamela with a lethal dose of diamorphine, Harold immediately went back to the surgery and made 10 changes to her medical records on his computer to cover his tracks. Nine days after murdering Pamela Hillier, Harold Shipman murdered 57-year-old former teacher Maureen Ward. Like Irene Turner, Maureen was in cancer remission and was in good health at the time of her death. She had planned to move away from her Ogden Court home to Southport in Merseyside and also had a holiday to the Caribbean to look forward to. On the morning of February 18th, 1998, Maureen paid a visit to her friend Mary France, with the pair each finishing a cup of coffee whilst they chatted. Mary would be accompanying Maureen on the trip to the Caribbean in 10 days' time, so there was plenty to discuss. After the coffee, Maureen filled a bin bag with Mary's clothes, intending to wash them at a laundrette in Hyde. Within a few hours of their meeting, Maureen would be dead. She was visited by Harold Shipman at her home, part of a sheltered housing complex, and injected with a lethal dose of diamorphine. Christine Simpson, the warden of the complex, recalled Harold Shipman randomly knocking on her door that day to inform her that one of the residents had died. Christine said, I was in my own house within the complex when I answered a knock on the door. It was Dr. Shipman. He didn't say anything to me. I said, not another one. He replied, yes. I said, who? He replied, Maureen, number 41. Will you come across as I have found her dead on the bed? In disbelief, Christine was further shocked when Harold said, she did have a brain tumour, you know. To which Christine replied she had no idea. You won't be surprised to hear that Maureen did not have a brain tumour. Harold amended her medical records to say that a cancer had spread to her brain to insinuate that as being her cause of death, but it wasn't the case. According to Christine, at no point did Harold examine or even touch Maureen. She took the GP at his word, as so many did. By this point, you're probably wondering how on earth nobody had cottoned on to the fact that so many of Harold's patients were dying whilst in his care. Well, dear listener, someone did, and here's what happened on the back of those suspicions being raised. Dr. Linda Reynolds, who worked at the Brook practice across the road from the surgery, made a report to Mr. John Pollard, coroner for the Greater Manchester South District, on March 24, 1998. Dr. Reynolds was concerned over how many of Harold's patients were dying and how bizarre the circumstances were. All of them appeared to be sudden deaths, with none of the patients being terminally ill. John Pollard passed on Dr. Reynolds' concerns to Chief Superintendent David Sykes and Detective Inspector David Smith. 
The concerns in question were that Harold was either refusing to send his patients to the hospital and they were dying as a result, or he was killing them. Greater Manchester Police then carried out a confidential investigation led by D.I. Smith under the supervision of C.S. Sykes. The first step was to acquire the death certificate certified by Harold to his patients over the last six months. The total number of death certificates was 31. There is a discrepancy as to how many death certificates were handed to D.I. Smith, with an estimate being 20, which means 11 of the certificates were either lost or not looked at. Several errors occurred during the investigation, including D.I. Smith's failure to check the cremation register for the patients that had been cremated. Had he done so, he'd have seen Harold's name appear on all of them. Masses, the funeral director who organised nine of the 31 patients' funerals, previously raised concerns internally, but nothing was formally highlighted to the authorities. The long and short of it is that D.I. Smith felt there was no substance in Dr. Reynolds' concerns and the investigation into Harold Shipman was called off on April 17, 1998. It's also worth noting that D.I. Smith didn't check the police national computer to see if Harold had any prior convictions. Had he done so, he'd have seen the drug offences from the 70s and perhaps the investigation may have gone in a different direction. Had D.I. Smith done a more thorough job, at least three of Harold's patients' lives would have been saved. Winifred Meller was a 73-year-old devout Catholic who lived at Corona Avenue. She had been one of Harold's patients for 18 years, following him wherever he went. At the time of her death in May 1998, Winifred had a pilgrimage to Israel to look forward to, something she discussed on the eve of her death with her son Daniel. Daniel said, the last time I saw mum was about two weeks before her death. She was her usual self, fit and active. We went for a walk up Werneth Low. I also spoke to mum by telephone the evening before her death. We discussed her planned pilgrimage to Israel. She did not mention any concerns to me about her health and did not seem ill or down in any way. Allegedly complaining of a sinus problem, Winifred was visited at her home by Harold on May 11th, 1998. He injected her with a lethal dose of diamorphine and left her in her chair with a sleeve rolled up to indicate she had accidentally overdosed on drugs. Harold phoned Winifred's daughter Kathleen and chose to go down the riddle route again. The call went something like this. Kathleen. Is it my mum? Is she not well? Harold. No. Did you know your mother suffered from angina? Kathleen. Are you sending her to hospital? Harold. No. Kathleen, do you mean she's dead? Harold, I see you understand. What an evil bastard. Harold then returned to the surgery to amend Winifred's medical history before returning to her house, by which time Kathleen and her sister Susan had arrived. Catholic priest Father Dennis Maher was also there. According to Harold Shipman, coronary thrombosis was their mum's cause of death. Harold was said to have been stood behind the chair Winifred was in and was leaning on it while speaking to them. He treated their mum's death flippantly and quickly shot down any questions the sisters had. Winifred's body was later exhumed after Harold's arrest. Home office pathologist Dr John Rutherford confirmed that her cause of death was due to being given a lethal dose of diamorphine. Joan Mellier was Harold Shipman's penultimate murder trial victim. The 73-year-old divorcee, like each of the other women I've spoke about, was in excellent health. Joan was retired, but previously she had worked as a postroom supervisor at Delta Enfield Cables, a manufacturing company in Staley Bridge. Her niece, Jean Pinder, had the following to say about her aunt. 
She visited my mum every Thursday at 8.30am because my mum was wheelchair bound. This involved two bus journeys and was never ever a problem. My aunt was extremely fit and slim. She was a size 10. She was an extremely proud woman and although she had a hearing aid, she would never admit it to anyone. On June 12, 1998, Joan visited the surgery due to suffering from a bog-standard chest infection. I say bog-standard because it wasn't severe enough to be worried about, but it also wasn't mild enough to not warrant a trip to the doctor. After seeing Harold at the surgery, he made a house call later that day to Joan's home on Commercial Street, where he administered a lethal dose of diamorphine. She was discovered dead in her chair later that day by her friend Derek Steele. Derek and Joan had known each other for 20 years and he was the one who insisted she visit Harold. Derek then took his friend to the surgery for her appointment and dropped her off at home upon its completion. He only lived a few doors down so it was no bother. When Derek asked Joan what the GP had told her, she said she had pleurisy and pneumonia. Surely a hospital trip was on the cards, Derek asked. Joan explained that no such discussion had taken place. She was simply sent home with a penicillin prescription. Derek said he'd pop round in a few hours to check on Joan. Some kip might do her good, he thought. It was when Derek popped round later that day that he discovered Joan had died. The first person he called was Harold Shipman, who arrived at the house around 15 minutes later. In a visit lasting all of five minutes, Harold explained that it was too late. Joan was dead. Once again, he didn't examine Joan at all. He then reportedly said to Derek, You'll have no trouble with the death certificate. I'll make one out. Said death certificate listed pneumonia and emphysema as Joan's cause of death. A later exhumation of Joan confirmed the lethal amount of diamorphine present in her body. No evidence of lung problems were found. Last week we ended part one by briefly discussing the murder of 81-year-old Kathleen Grundy, a former mayoress of Hyde. Kathleen's was the murder that led to Harold Shipman's arrest. As a refresher, Kathleen was murdered by Harold in her Joel Lane home after being given a lethal dose of diamorphine. The home visit was organised by Harold Shipman on the pretense of him obtaining a blood sample for a non-existent survey about ageing from Manchester University. Things started unravelling on July 13th, 1998, a couple of weeks after Kathleen's funeral, when solicitor Brian Burgess informed Angela Woodruff, Kathleen's daughter, that he had received her mum's will. The crudely typewritten will had so many red flags. Here's what Angela said about it. It was badly typed. My mother was a meticulous, tidy person. The whole thing was unbelievable. The whole concept of my mother signing a document giving everything to a doctor was inconceivable. The will stated that Kathleen's entire £386,000 estate was to be left solely to Harold Shipman. Her children were to receive nothing. The forgery plot began a few days before the murder when Harold got Kathleen to sign a random document in the presence of two other patients, Paul Spencer and Claire Hutchinson, who had no idea what they were witnessing. Basically, he wanted to acquire Kathleen's signature so that he could attempt to copy it on the fake will document he typed up. He could then fake the two witnesses' signatures to make the document look legit, or so he thought. Angela visited the police station on July 24th, 1998 and expressed her concerns about the will. Eight days later, on August 1st, 1998, Kathleen Grundy's body was exhumed and a post-mortem was carried out. Here is a summary that came after toxicology tests. Mrs Grundy's death is consistent with the use or administration of a significant quantity of morphine or diamorphine and similar values have been seen in fatalities attributed to morphine overdoses. September 7th, 1998 was the date Harold Shipman was finally arrested. 
he was summoned to Ashton Underline Police Station accompanied by his solicitor Anne Ball. Harold was questioned about Kathleen's death and dismissed all accusations of his involvement. He even insisted that Kathleen had a drug problem and her death likely came due to an accidental overdose. Eventually, just over a year later, Harold Shipman's murder trial began. He was charged with 15 counts of murder, those of Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Nora Nuttall, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Meller, Joan Mellier and Kathleen Grundy. He was also charged with one count of forgery concerning the will of Kathleen Grundy. The trial at Preston Crown Court began on October 5th, 1999, was overseen by Mr Justice Thane Forbes and lasted almost three months. Kathleen Grundy's daughter, Angela Woodruff, was the first witness called to the stand. Fingerprint analysis confirmed Kathleen had never touched her will and that her signature appeared to have been crudely forged. Once Angela had said her piece, a government pathologist explained to the jury what each of the victim's post-mortem examinations found. Each of the 15 had died after being given a lethal dose of morphine or diamorphine. Further evidence confirmed Harold's many changes to his patient's medical records on his computer. After that, Harold's acquisition and hoarding of large quantities of opioids were brought to the jury's attention. The disgraced GP didn't have a chance of being found not guilty. On the afternoon of January 31st, 2000, at 4.30pm, the jury returned to the court and delivered their verdicts. Harold Shipman was found guilty of each of the 15 murder charges, as well as the forgery charge. Mr Justice then Forbes handed Harold a life sentence for each of the murders and a four-year sentence for the forgery. In his closing statement, Mr Justice Thane Forbes said the following, You used a calculating and cold-blooded perversion of your medical skills. You have shown no remorse. In your case, life must mean life. You must spend the remainder of your days in prison. A whole life tariff was to commence immediately at Durham Prison. A quick word now about the Shipman Inquiry. It was announced on February 1st, 2000, the day after Shipman was sentenced, by the Secretary of State for Health, that an independent private inquiry would take place to establish what changes to current systems should be made to safeguard patients in the future. High Court Judge Dame Janet Smith, DBE, was eventually appointed as chairman of the Shipman Inquiry and the work of the independent public inquiry began in February 2001. The inquiry's first report was published on July 19, 2002 and its sixth and final report on January 27, 2005. As I said earlier, I've linked an archived version of the old Shipman Inquiry website in my show notes. Each of the six reports is available to read in its entirety. I also mentioned in part one that the inquiry ended after Harold's death, so we may as well talk about that next. Harold had been on suicide watch at Durham Prison and another prison after he received his whole life tariff. For some reason, his suicide watch ceased upon his arrival at Wakefield Prison, aka the Monster Mansion, on June 18, 2003. On January 13, 2004, the day before his 58th birthday, Harold Shipman was found dead in his cell. He had hanged himself using a makeshift noose. A day earlier, on January 12, Harold wrote five letters to his family. Suicidal thoughts or plans were mentioned in none of them. He even told his wife Primrose that he'd call her the next day. Harold was discovered on the morning of January 13th at 6.20am and continuous attempts were made to revive him. He was officially pronounced dead by the prison doctor at 8.10am. Here's the kicker. 
Harold had been planning his own death for years. A technicality in his GP pension meant that if he died before his 60th birthday, Primrose, his wife, would receive a lump sum payment of 100 grand immediately, followed by 10 grand more the following year. Or perhaps 10 grand a year, it's not clear. Regardless, if Harold had died after he turned 60, Primrose would have only been entitled to 5 grand a year from the pension. There's also something known as the Shipman effect that reportedly affected several GPs in the aftermath of Harold's murder trial. A BBC News report from 2006 stated that a snapshot poll of GPs found that some were more reluctant to prescribe pain-relieving drugs to terminally ill patients. They feared becoming the next Harold Shipman. The final person I will introduce this week is Susie Garrett, a four-year-old girl who suffered from cerebral palsy while also having tetraplegia. Susie was ill with pneumonia in November 1972 and was a regular patient at Pontefract General Infirmary, where Harold got his first medical job as a junior doctor after completing medical school. Susie's mum, Anne, called Harold Shipman to the house one day and left the wannabe doctor alone with her daughter for just 10 minutes. Upon her return, Susie had died. The Shipman inquiry heard that Susie was killed in the 10 minutes her mum was away making a cup of tea. Dame Janet Smith concluded that there was a quite serious suspicion that the four-year-old had died at the hands of a young Harold Shipman. Harold also killed several men, but his main target was women of a certain age who trusted him implicitly. He chose to abuse that trust and end their lives prematurely so he could relive his beloved mother's death repeatedly. He remains the most prolific serial killer in modern history. As a reminder, his estimated victim count is in excess of 250. And that concludes the story of British serial killer Harold Shipman. Thanks again Anna Billingsley and her granny for suggesting that case. I've got five new reviews to read this week. My old mate the dogs 55555 left a five-star review on Apple Podcast Thailand. Titled Sheer Brilliance, it reads, As always, this show is the dogs. Brilliant. Keep it up. ScubaGirl67 left a five-star review on Apple Podcast USA. Titled Awesomeness, it reads, Stuart. Love the podcast. Thanks for the informative podcast. It's what I listen to when I'm typing a large report at work. You are helping to make the time go by faster. Plus, I have a tender place in my heart for a northern accent. Fill your boots. Matthew Tuckett left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Titled Easy to Listen to, it reads, I love getting out to ride on the lawnmower with my Bluetooth earmuffs to listen to Stuart while I cut the lawn. Listening to him talking about a British murderer, both ones I've heard of and others new to me, while mowing away and having a Bundaberg ginger beer is a great way to spend a few hours on a sunny Tasmanian afternoon. Sounds delightful. Sue left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Titled All of Them, it reads, Love the way it's presented without a whole lot of rubbish, jokes, etc. Straight to the point and informative. And Katie Hardin recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, I've just found British Murders podcast. All I can say is I'm addicted. Listen for three days straight while I've been working. Really well told and so interesting. Thank you, the dogs 55555, ScubaGirl67, Matthew, Sue and Katie for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode? You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. 
Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon member, Daniel Griffiths. By signing up, Daniel now has access to fortnightly bonus episodes, ad-free regular episodes, and I also release the normal episodes a day or two earlier for my Patreon members. Why not consider joining the show's Patreon if those benefits interest you? Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. That officially completes Season 7 now. Next week, I have an off-season collab episode with Bobby Holmes of Killer Stories. I also have an interview episode with writer and broadcaster Simon Farker out next week. The week after, it will be another off-season collab episode. I'm linking up with Grace from Red Rum for that one. As for this end-of-season special, that's it for now. Thanks for sticking with me. I know it's been a bit of a mammoth episode, and across two parts, it's probably the length of a movie. (laughs) I appreciate you listening, as always. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio!